Happy Feast of Trumpets to all of you, and welcome to all our guests. And thank you for the Charlotte Choir, Mr. McCullough, and all those who participated, Mrs. Fisher, Mr. King. Uh, just very inspiring to see our honoring God in that very special way. Also, thank you also, ladies and uh, gentlemen, for the wonderful covered dish meal. I uh, know that some of you, after such a wonderful meal, would like to take a siesta. Uh, but we will have a roving shofar horn uh, coming around to anyone who falls asleep. I do want to send greetings to all of our brethren around the world at this glorious Feast of Trumpets. And again, welcome to our guests. How wonderful the holy days and the annual festivals reveal God's plan of salvation for all humanity. The world is got this deceived plan that you just accept Jesus and that's all it is. You're already saved and that's all there is to it. But God has revealed his plan of salvation through the annual festivals and the annual holy days. At the end of God's plan, concluding with the white throne judgment and beyond, you know, all human beings will either be glorified spirit beings in the royal family of God, or they will be ashes in the lake of fire. So God has a plan that he wants all of us to be in his family. The first fruits of God's plan will experience lasting joy, will experience the ultimate fall harvest of souls that will later experience in God's plan of salvation through the festival of tabernacles symbolizing a thousand years of God's rule on this earth, followed by the white throne judgment, when all those billions and billions of people who have been deceived will have their first real opportunity for salvation. Just an incredible time that we will be serving those billions of people. This morning we heard uh, Dr. Meredith exhort us to remain faithful through the trying tribulations and sobering times ahead. We need to be alert. We need to be sober. We need to be persevering through the seven trumpet plagues that will constitute the day of the Lord. Then the seventh trumpet sounds, and then, as we heard in the sermonette and this morning, as Dr. Meredith has described it, we have liftoff. It's just a, an exciting visualization to think, what will it be like when you are no longer physical? when you'll have even greater intensity of power and intellect and mind and character that'll just be godly because we'll be born into the divine family of God. Let's turn to Second Peter, the first chapter, and be thankful for the high calling we have. Second Peter, the first chapter. We have such a high calling, and with that calling comes responsibility, and, of course, appreciation. First Peter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, for brethren, be even more diligent to make your call an election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Oh, God gives us promise after promise after promise that, yes, you can make it. You will be saved. And Christ is our Savior, as it tells us in Romans 5.10 that we shall be saved by his life. So you've got that hope, you've got that confidence, you've got that assurance and promise that should give us all the more faith to know that, yes, he will not 
let go of us. As it tells us, I believe I quoted in the sermon recently, Philippians 1, 6, that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And if we start to go astray, he'll correct us and put us right back on the right path. Verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So God promises to bring us into his kingdom. And he has that wonderful plan of salvation revealed through his holy days and the annual festivals. Dr. Meredith referred to the booklet on the holy days, God's master plan, or God's plan, the holy days, God's master plan. So I hope you will take his admonition to read that booklet if you haven't. And also there are several sermons along that line of God's plan. That's uh, Dr. Meredith's sermon number 661. God's plan, the holy days, and Dr. Douglas Winnell's sermon number 391, God's plan and you. The world doesn't know that God has a plan because it would, in a sense, just says, well, here it is, is Easter, that's all there is, and communion uh, every Sunday, that's God's plan. No, that's not God's plan. It's uh, imitation a uh, modification of the truth. It's not the truth. But the New Testament Passover reveals the need for repentance and reconciliation, healing and forgiveness through the body and the blood of Christ. The days of unleavened bread teach us that we need to overcome the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. With God's help and his power, we replace human nature with God's divine nature. And then the Feast of Pentecost comes along, which began the New Testament church, where the promise of the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, actually came and begat and resided in the brain and the mind of those saints that he was was calling. And then 3,000 were baptized that day after Peter's sermon. But that began the New Testament church. Then the Feast of Trumpets gives us the hope of the resurrection. And it also reveals the prophetic events of the year-long day of the Lord. Some Church of God groups say that the resurrection does not occur on the Feast of Trumpets, but on Pentecost. We saw this morning a resurrection takes place at the last trumpet. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. The idea that the resurrection takes place on Pentecost doesn't make sense. It requires that we transfer the meaning of trumpets onto Pentecost. If we follow that logic, then we must transfer the meaning of Pentecost onto the last day of unleavened bread and so forth, and the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles onto trumpets. No, we don't follow that false logic. God created the calendar. This is the first day of the seventh month. It's the Feast of Trumpets. He made a special purpose for it being on this day, not on Pentecost. Pentecost is, yes, we're begotten as first fruits, but we are resurrected at the last trumpet. And, of course, the seven trumpets show us the day of the Lord. The the year-long day of the Lord doesn't go from Pentecost to Pentecost. It goes from trumpets to trumpets. And the last trumpet 
is when the resurrection takes place. As I mentioned, and we saw this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. So following the Feast of Trumpets, of course, that's the middle feast and the middle holy day of the seven festivals and the middle uh, holy day, followed by the Day of Atonement that gives hope for the world. It reminds us again that there was the sacrifice of Christ because there are the two goats, one, one goat representing Christ, the other one Satan was put away in the wilderness. But why does Christ, why does God bring that up in the Holy Day plan to have the lamb sacrificed again on atonement? Because Christ's sacrifice will be made available to the whole world on atonement. That begins the Jubilee. And then Satan will be put away, as we heard, and that will be great news for the whole world. Then followed by the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. It gives us a vision of the kingdom of God on earth, where Christ will rule as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will assist him as kings, priests, and judges for a thousand years. Then the last great day pictures the white throne judgment when billions of people will be resurrected in the second general resurrection, a resurrection to physical life. I expect my parents to be in that resurrection. They will have a period of judgment that we feel will be about 100 years based on Isaiah 65 and verse 20. This will be their real first opportunity for salvation. And after that hundred years, then the final resurrection to the lake of fire, when all of the incorrigibly wicked, those who rebelled against God, those who sealed their fate to be evil and wicked and didn't repent, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Then the whole earth will be purified, and then God will be able to come down to a purified, sinless earth, bringing the new Jerusalem. And as God's glorified family will join him as he makes all things new, as it tells us in Revelation 21 and verse 5. So God has an awesome plan, and the world doesn't know that plan. We are privileged to have that precious, precious truth, as we heard this morning. So today is the first day of the seventh month in God's calendar. We saw this morning Leviticus 23, verse 23 that we are to keep the memorial or the blowing of trumpets. In the New King James Version of the Bible, it has actually at the heading, a subhead, the Feast of Trumpets. In Hebrew, it's Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year. The Jews celebrate this as a new year. One of the common greetings is Shana Tova, which means a good year or have a good year. So Shana Tova to all of you. The book of Revelation gives us understanding for the meaning of this day, and we've read these scriptures, but let's read it again. Revelation 11, verse 15. We know that the seventh seal of Revelation 8 consists of the seven trumpet plagues. And the seventh trumpet, of course, consists of the seven last plagues, or seven last bowls, they call. And if you do have not received the uh, book of Revelation, Revelation, the mystery unveiled. Of course, in the middle, it does have a chart uh, showing the seven seals, which Dr. Meredith expounded on this morning, and the seven trumpets and the seven last plagues. So the chart 
In that booklet, you should be familiar with that. Here in Revelation 11:15, the second woe is past. The third woe is coming quickly. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord of, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Of course, that's also sung in Handel's Messiah around uh, December. That's actually performed in many churches and venues uh, around the world. But just a wonderful, inspiring an awesome announcement because it will mean our change, as we heard this morning, be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are remain in our lives shall be changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. But how will the world receive that news? Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. Mr. Lee gave a sermon yes, last week on, uh, well, last Sabbath, just not last week, just a couple of days ago, on the fear of God. And we know Isaiah 66, verse 2. In fact, uh, Dr. Meredith, I was just reading that a little while ago, his uh, co-worker letter that was just mailed out November 11th. And uh, he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 2. To this man will I look, to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. I've told you the story before about one time when I was asking God to help me have an awe and a reverence of him. I was in a dormitory at uh, Ambassador College at the time. And... Uh, in my room, I had a book on the shelf. It was a Time Life series on the universe. And the cover just had, it looked like galaxies and asteroids, just myriads and myriads of them. And I was praying on my knees at that time. I just happened to look up at that picture. And all of a sudden, in a microsecond, I was flat on my face and, and trembling in awe of who I was, where I was. And who God is to think of that universe. Where was I in that picture, in that universe? Well, of course, uh, some corrected me saying, well, you weren't in that picture because it didn't have planet Earth. But if planet Earth were in that picture, it would have been a tiny pinprick. And where would I be? I would be even tinier in that. And it just gave me a perspective on the magnificence and the omnipotence of Almighty God that he's infinite in so many respects. And so we have that awe and that respect. And here the 24 elders, Revelation 11, verse 16, fell on their faces and worshiped God. I don't know if you've ever done that. I have. And if you haven't, perhaps there's that element missing in your spiritual education of having that awe and that reverence of God. The love of God and the fear of God are not mutually exclusive. They're complementary. You love God and you fear God. And that helps you to be a complete and whole person. Verse 17, the 24 elders said, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. Yes, God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's his promise. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations, how did the nations respond to that great news? The nations were angry. 
and your wrath is come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. Now, being judged in one sense is delivered, as uh, one of the meanings has. Judge me, O God, and save me. Uh, Some of the Psalms have the sense in that case is to be delivered. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name and have an awesome respect and reverence for God's name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So the world will not respond favorably to the seventh trumpet announcement. They will be angry, and they will want to fight against Christ at his coming. But we need to prepare for that time, and we will not rebel against God. We will rejoice, and if we are faithful, we will be transformed from mortal to immortality, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4. Again, those two resurrection chapters, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, are so relevant and vital to this day. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And as Dr. Meredith mentioned this morning, we've had several of our brethren who have died in the last few months. We can think of those who died over the past several years, ministers, ministers' wives, brethren around the world, and knowing that they sleep in Jesus. They are not experiencing any pain, no anxiety. They are at peace. Verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And we know so many of our faithful brethren who are at peace. We will have to face some very severe trials in the future, as we heard. But he says to comfort one another with these words. We look forward to the time when we will Always be with the Lord wherever he is. So my question for you today is, will you be prepared for the seventh trumpet? Will you greet the king of kings with joy and praise? Certainly not as the world, which will be angry at the announcement in this, at the seventh trumpet. The title for the sermon today is Prepare for the Kingdom. We already saw how the world will be angry. The 24 elders will rejoice. They'll fall on their faces and praise God. But why will these nations fight against Christ at his coming? Part of it is that they will be deceived. We had several articles over the years, one that uh, goes back here to the Good News magazine, October 1964, by... David John Hill. Mr. Hill was one of my teachers at Ambassador College, very colorful 
a very inspiring teacher. The Good News article is titled, Will You, all caps, Be Deceived by Antichrist? Good News, October 1964. He writes, talking about uh, the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2, That man will tell the whole world the biggest lie ever told. Into the ears of those who do not have a love of the truth, he will pour the lie that our returning king, Jesus Christ, is the Antichrist. And they will believe him because God will have sent them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 11. What is that delusion that these false prophets will give their followers? This is from Prophecy for Today. Uh, by Dionysius of Luxembourg, who died in 1682. Mr. Hill writes, Listen to this satanic delusion. And this is a false prophet, prophet, prophecy. Quote, Antichrist will be an iconoclast, that is, against idols. Most of the world will adore him. He will teach that Christian religion is false. Confiscation of Christian property is legal. Saturday is to be observed instead of Sunday, and he will change the Ten Commandments. That is, he'll restore them to their original form, including the Declaration Against Idols. All his wonders could not be written in a book. They will be more wonderful than the Old and New Testaments. He will read people's minds, raise the dead, reward his followers, and punish the rest. Well, that's from Prophecy for Today by Dionysius of Luxembourg and... He will begin to by affecting respect for the law of Moses. That's from the same, same source, prophecy for today. So you see that Satan is a crafty deceiver. He will turn the impression that Christ will come back here, but he'll be the Antichrist, because he's going to be teaching you have to keep Saturday as the Sabbath. You have to keep the Ten Commandments. And so that will be to those deceived people, a false idea of the Antichrist. We've had another article by Richard H. Sedliacek in the Plain Truth magazine, Will the World Recognize the Returning Christ? He writes on uh, page 27 of this uh, Plain Truth article, What the False Prophet Will Claim. Already the clever deception is being spread. Notice this false prophecy revealed well over a century ago. Quote, Antichrist will fight a successful battle at Megiddo, or Armageddon in brackets, in Palestine, after which he will therefore become Lord of the world. Prophecy for today, page 71. Mr. Sadliacek uh, continues on page 48, Will the world recognize the returning Christ? The false prophecy continues. Then that abominable one, meaning Jesus Christ, what blasphemy against God Almighty, will send his commands throughout every government by the hand at once of demons and of visible men who will say, A mighty king has arisen upon the earth. Come you all to worship him. Come you all to see the strength of his kingdom. For behold, he will give you corn, and he will bestow upon you wine and great riches and lofty honors. For the whole earth and sea obey his command. Come you all to him. And uh, that is from the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Hippolytus uh, section 
section 28, page 249. So you know why the world will fight Christ at his coming. They will be deceived into thinking that he's the Antichrist. And, of course, the rebellion will just uh, reinforce that whole approach. So how will we prepare for the kingdom to come? With all these deceptions, we have to be sure and make our calling sure, as we read there in Second Peter, the first chapter. We need to understand First Thessalonians 5:21, which most of you have applied in your life, in your spiritual life, as long as you've been in the church. Prove all things. Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. You've tested it. And you know John 8.32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So you have that comfort. You have the discernment, the way to decide between truth and error. The world sometimes believes the uh, old expression, the bigger the lie, the more people believe it. Let's turn to 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John 2. If Satan would try to believe, if possible, the very elect, as it says in Matthew, the 24th chapter. But he's not going to deceive the very elect if you are faithful in testing and proving all things. And one of the ways that we will remain faithful is brought out here in 1 John 2 and verse 3. 1 John 2, verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Our very lives demonstrate the fruits of God's way of life, that it brings forth peace, comfort, and the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Let's turn to Matthew, the 25th chapter. Matthew 25, God has called us to be spiritually awake and alert. We need to make sure that we will not be deceived by all of the deceptions that are prophesied throughout the great tribulation and the day of the Lord. Matthew 25 and verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, we are called to the wedding, we read in Revelation, the 19th chapter. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Sounds like Laodiceanism. And that's why you're prodded so frequently by the ministry. We all need to be prodded not to fall asleep, not to give up, not to be slack in our spiritual pursuit of the truth and of living God's way of life. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Verse 6, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And every time we hear that trumpet sound, it reminds us of this admonition, this warning. The bridegroom is coming. Prepare to meet him. Prepare for the kingdom. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Now why didn't they know their lamps were going out earlier? Because they weren't prodding themselves. 
They were getting lazy. They were compromising in their lives, not prodding themselves. Verse 9, But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. No, they're going to have to go through a tribulation in order to learn the deeper lessons they should have learned when they had the time and peace and opportunity. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So we look forward to that time when the saints will stand on the sea of glass and have that wedding and meet Christ face to face and meet God the Father face to face in heaven for those nine days up until the Day of Atonement from the Feast of Trumpets. They went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Yes, we believe the Father will be there at his son's wedding. And he will not come to earth until after the 1100 years. Afterward, the other virgins also saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, surely I say to you, I do not know you. So the lesson then, verse 13, which I hope you have underlined, should underline. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so we always need to have that vigilance and always realize as long as I'm alive, I have that close contact, intimate relationship with our Father in heaven and with our Lord Jesus Christ. So brethren has called us, God has called us to meet the King when he comes. And the Feast of Trumpets urges us to prepare for the kingdom. So how are you preparing for the kingdom? How are you preparing to meet the bridegroom? Of course, every sermon we hear helps us to prepare. I'll refer you to Dr. Meredith's sermon, number 531, Do You Actually Live by Faith? And part of our preparation is living every day by faith. We have a sermon 324, Live Each Day by Faith. So the lesson in verse 13 is, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Dr. Meredith's co-worker letter of November 11th, uh, 2012, again gives us that urgent reminder and exhortation. He writes here, Dear brethren and co-workers with Christ, greeting from Charlotte, North Carolina, what actually comes first in your life? Now, when he writes that, I hope that you actually think about the question and try to answer the question. Most of you co-workers have demonstrated by becoming co-workers that you know that God is real and that he is intervening in world affairs and in your life. That is wonderful, and the Creator will certainly bless any of us who sincerely try to honor him and do our part in his end-time work. Later on in the co-worker letter of November, September 11th, 2012, He writes, Indeed, the watered-down form of godliness now permeating our nation always leads to denying the real power or the authority of the living God. The Word of God reveals that in his first age, in this first final age or era of his church and of this earth's civilization, the spirit of Laodicea will prevail. Here is how God himself describes the Laodicean attitude, and he quotes Revelation 3, Verses 15 through 16. 
I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Dr. Meredith continues, Even most supposedly religious people very seldom truly get inspired or on fire for God and His Word. The spirit of complacency and compromise is totally dominant in today's Christianity. God's true ways and His laws are compromised and watered down in every single facet of our society. So all of us need to wake up. If you haven't yet done so, please call us or write us and request your free copy of our vital booklet entitled The Ten Commandments. Because the New Covenant, which God describes in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10, is that he's writing his laws on our hearts and on our minds. In other words, we're being transformed into the very nature of God. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. We're being transformed into the very image of Christ. I believe that's Romans 8 and verse 29. So we need that transformation in our lives, and the annual festivals help us to do that. So how do we prepare to meet the king? We must always have oil in our lamps. We must always be alert and watchful. Let's turn to Luke, the 11th chapter, Luke 11. And one of the other ways, of course, is to make sure that we're renewing our minds daily, renewing our spiritual life daily. And one of the promises God gives us to do that is Luke 11, verse 13. The one that I remind God of frequently. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God is a loving Father. He's willing to give you gifts. Matthew's account said, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? That's one of His promises. I claim that promise frequently. I hope you do too. Second Timothy, the first chapter, one with which you're very familiar, but one that we need reminding as we prepare for the king. Second Timothy 1 and verse 6. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now as an older person, I, you know, tend to get sleepy and I see some of you are sleepy uh, now. I won't, uh, I'm going to start calling, no, I won't call your names. <laughs> uh, where's Mr. King with the shofar? We, uh, anyway, I've been, I, normally in an afternoon sermon, when we have sermons in the morning and the afternoon, I do allow a 90 second siesta, so that's all right, uh, just only 90 seconds, however. Because I've been where you are, and I know what it's like. So we have to stir ourselves up. Uh, that's why I just took a walk uh, here earlier, uh, before lunch, uh, to get some blood circulating, just walking around the parking lot. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. And that's how we have received the Spirit of God as well. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, or the Greek can also mean discipline, the gift of discipline. But it's also sound-mindedness, and that's one of the blessings that God gives His people when we realize there's so much mental illness and um, 
problems with mental health in the world, God gives us a sound mind. Keep praying for that and stir up the gift that God's given you so you can be one of those virgins who meet Christ, who have oil in their lamps, as we read in Matthew 25. How else do we prepare to meet the king? We all know that we have a great mission and calling. John 4:34, a memorization verse most of you should know. I think you do know. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And that's what sustains us, the motivation, the mission that God has given us. We've accepted that mission. And we know that we can fulfill that mission because Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, All power, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And so as he is the head of the church, he gives us the power then to fulfill the mission. Will you be faithful in your preparation? I won't turn there, but you know the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and that comes right after the wise and foolish virgin's admonition. Are you developing your talents? And the parable of the minas in Luke 19, are you growing? Are you overcoming? Are you serving? Are you helping? Do you have that give attitude? On this Feast of Trumpets, are you anticipating the seventh trumpet? Are you looking forward to seeing Christ and God the Father face to face? The very thought of that awesome event is almost indescribable. How would you describe it? Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. Well, we're already in 2 Timothy 1.6. Just turn over the page to 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6. The Apostle Paul is about ready to be martyred, and he's giving his last exhortations and instructions to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well, that should be our characteristic, a part of our very nature, that we're doing the same. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we need to have that anticipation, that hope, that expectation, that desire to meet the bridegroom and be there at the wedding. How else do you prepare to meet the king? You need to be aware of prophetic events, and God has blessed his church to understand the sequence of prophetic events. We heard quite a few of that, of those events this morning as Dr. Meredith went through Revelation 8 and 9 showing what was going to happen to the seven trumpets, the ecological disasters of a third of the trees, a third of ocean life uh, being destroyed, and coming up then, of course, to the, the three final woes of the battles that lead up to Armageddon. If you'll take your chart, we can take a look at the overall prophetic milestones here just by way of review. 
We understand that, as Dr. Meredith read this morning from Matthew 24, and I might just turn back there just by way of reinforcement, the big three milestones or three major events are the Great Tribulation, the heavenly signs, and the Day of the Lord. How do we know the order of those events? Well, Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, which we read this morning, shows that there is a time unique. Never in the world's history has a time been like this, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved, Matthew 24, verse 22. But what happens then after that great tribulation? We read it this morning, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So the next major event is the cosmic disturbances or the heavenly signs. And that's also mentioned in Revelation, the sixth chapter. But let's turn also back to Joel, the second chapter. Joel, the second chapter, to get the overview of those prophetic milestones. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zebaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Hosea, Joel. Okay, that's the second one. Joel, the second chapter, and starting with verse 30. Joel 2 and verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what happens then of the cosmic disturbances and then the day of the Lord, the heavenly signs and then the day of the Lord. One perspective I believe many of our church members over the years have not understood, Mr. Herbert Armstrong made it very clear, and that is that when we start with the Great Tribulation, we realize in Revelation 12 how Satan realizes he has but a short time and he goes after the church and he goes after Israel and it's the time of Jacob's trouble. As it mentions in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, that the Great Tribulation is Satan's wrath upon Israel and upon the church. But the day of the Lord, two and a half years later, is God's judgments on the nations. So it's a very important distinction that you need to understand if you haven't understood that, that as you look at the two and a half years of tribulation, that's Satan's attack, and then the day of the Lord is God's judgments. He begins to intervene. Let's just... Reinforce that in Revelation, the sixth chapter. Revelation, the sixth chapter, where he's talking about the uh, six seals. He mentions the uh, sky being receded as a scroll, Revelation 6, verse 14, and how the great men of the earth, rich men, commanders, every free man, every slave, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. They're terrorized by these heavenly signs. And they say to the mountains and rocks, Revelation 6, verse 16, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from what? The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? 
So you have the fifth seal, verse 9, and then you have the sixth seal, which is the heavenly signs, verse 12. So the seventh seal then following is the great day of God's wrath. It's the day of the Lord that follows that. And there, as we've mentioned in the telecast and in our articles several times, there are two scriptures. I won't turn there to show that the day of the Lord is one year in end time prophecy. I'll just give you those references, Isaiah 34, 8 and Isaiah 63, verse 4. To show that the day of the Lord in end time prophecy, the time preceding the second coming, is a period of one year. In fact, we had a telecast that aired just last week, the coming day of the Lord. And, of course, you can find that on our tomorrowsworld.org website. So we see from the chart, then, that the three and a half years consists of two and a half years of the Great Tribulation, the heavenly signs, and the day of the Lord. And you have the four events that take place during that time. The church is in the wilderness. The beast continues for 42 months. And the Jerusalem is trodden down by the Gentiles for 42 months. And the two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days. But what happens before that? Uh, Dr. Meredith mentioned Matthew 24:15 this morning. That is the abomination of desolation. Let's turn back to Matthew 24:14 briefly to just see the sequence of events while we're there. Again, we don't have to guess. All we have to do is look to what Jesus brought out, Matthew 24, as sequence of events. And what is that sequence? He mentions, again, false Christs, as we heard this morning, wars, verse 6, a nation against nation, famines, pestilences, uh, verse 7. These are the beginning of sorrows. Then what happens? Then they shall deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That happens where? In sequence. Before, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. We'll come back to that here in a minute. But we come up to verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and the end will come. In verse 13, one of the messages that we're being given today by Christ, he who endures to the end shall be saved. We need that commitment for perseverance because he's promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. But then we come to the abomination of desolation. And at that point in time, he says, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That is verse 16. So how does that fit into the sequence of events? Well, let's turn back to Daniel, the 12th chapter, Daniel 12. And it's amazing how some individuals come up with all kinds of uh, creative uh, scenarios that certainly don't fit into uh, exactly what Daniel was asking here in his questions. He was saying, when are the end of these days? When others say, oh, the 121335 and the 1290 are not the end, they are the beginning. And you come up with a whole kind of uh, imaginative stories that have no place in reality in the truth of the Bible and what's going to happen in the sequence of prophetic events. So here we're in Daniel, the 12th chapter, look at uh, verse 11. 
And from, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 100, I'm sorry, 1,290 days. Until what? Until the end of days, as it says. For Daniel, go your way, Daniel, for you shall rest, verse 13, and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. So these numbers have a constant, a, a simultaneous, a constant ending in the end of days. So the 1260 end at the seventh trumpet. The 1290 end at the, the seventh trumpet. Why is it the seventh trumpet? Because that's when Daniel will be resurrected, when he will be standing and inherit uh, his inheritance at the end of days. So from the time that the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So you look on the chart here, then that's 30 days before the Great Tribulation. And that, what is the, the marker? The marker is the abomination of desolation. And Jesus said, or Matthew wrote in there, let the reader understand. He wrote that in Matthew 24, verse 15. So you need to understand that when the abomination of desolation is set up, that is the time when Jesus said, those who are in the mountain, you know, in the fleet of the mountains, that's the time in the end time, when God's church will somehow, God will reveal to us, that's the time to flee. You've got 30 days before the great tribulation begins. But what happens before that? Verse 12 of Daniel 12. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Now, God has put that in the Bible for us to understand, and it's extremely important. Because it has to do with the end of days. That is the resurrection. It ends with the seventh trumpet, the resurrection, when Daniel will be resurrected. What information does he give us? He doesn't give us very much information. But verse 12, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Waiting has, in the context of many different scriptures, has to do with enduring persecution. And what did we read in Matthew 24, verse 13? He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And what did we read before verse 13 in Matthew 24, from verse 9 on? Well, let's, let's just go back there briefly. I did read it, but I've got this marked here on the chart, Matthew 24, verse 9. Persecution. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, verse 9. And many will be offended, will betray one another and hate one another. And that will happen in the church. That's a sobering warning. But I hope every single one of us will determine not to betray his brother or sister in Christ. But it's going to be tough. I think I've told you the story before, but... Mr. Zernikoff was uh, a minister of ours in uh, Norway, Oslo, Norway, my wife and I. And my mother actually visited there in 1989 in Oslo. We were there for atonement. Mr. Zernikoff had been in the underground in World War II. 
and uh, he and his wife, they had a baby, and, and uh, he would have the baby carriage, and he'd have secret information in the baby carriage that told the location. This is during the occupation of the Germans in World War II in Norway. And he would have the information, the location of German ships under the baby, in the baby carriage. And he would smile at the German officers and pass it on to his supervisor, who then in turn would transmit it to England and let that information known. His supervisor was caught, was arrested, and he knew that they would torture him and that he would give up Mr. Zernikoff's name. He didn't. Mr. Zernikoff told me, you know, in the White Throne Judgment, when that, his supervisor comes up, he is going to thank him profusely for saving his life and not betraying him. And yet, what does it say here? Verse 10, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Many of us will die, perhaps, as martyrs during that time. But it appears that from the sequence of events that Jesus gives us before the abomination of desolation in verse 15 of Matthew 24, there will be serious persecution. And he said, blessed is he that waits for the 13, 35 days. So we can conclude that in those 45 days are going to be serious persecution. It may separate those who will either go to a place in the wilderness with the church or not. Some of us may die in that, that particular period of time. And that would be fine if we do. Be in the second resurrection, we die in the faith. Mr. Herbert Armstrong, I was giving these presentations in 1977 and 78 in Big Sandy, not Big Sandy, St. Petersburg, and in 1979 in Seattle, Washington. And in 1980, Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote an article which validated what I'd been teaching for three years, thankfully. It's called The Good News Magazine, January 1980. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote a personal from Herbert W. Armstrong, The Time We Are Now In. Just where are we now in the prophesied panorama of events leading to the end of the age? I'll just skip ahead. He says, uh, from talking about Daniel 12:11 and uh, about the abomination of desolation in Matthew 25:15, which we've just discussed, he said, from this time, Daniel 12:11 to Christ's coming will be 1,290 days from the time of the abomination of desolation to Christ's coming or the seventh trumpet. Verse Now, verse 12, blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Mr. Armstrong writes, never before have we understood these periods of 1260, 1290, and 1335 days, but it seems evident now a blessing is pronounced on us, God's church, who wait and endure until the 1335 days, approximately 1,335 days prior to Christ's coming. But since no one can know the day or the hour of his coming, we probably shall not be able to know the exact day that this 1,335 days begins. But apparently, again, he says, apparently, that is the time when our work shall end. That will be a time when the United Europe will appear, the revival of the medieval Roman Empire, Holy Roman Empire. We shall then be warned 
and ready to be taken to a place of refuge and safety from the great tribulation. Forty-five days later, the beast's armies will surround Jerusalem. Thirty days later, the great tribulation will probably, again, he uses the word probably, the great tribulation will probably start with a nuclear attack on London and Britain, and possibly the same day or immediately after on the United States and Canadian cities. The great tribulation we shall then fully realize is the time of Jacob's trouble spoken of in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. So when you take a look at the chart, you realize that these periods of times, and there may be some wiggle room in here, so this gives you at least an overview. 11, Revelation 11 verse 15 is the seventh trumpet when these events end in transition into, as we have the box following that, the first resurrection, the marriage of the Lamb, the seven last plagues, Revelation 16, which uh, Dr. Meredith read from this morning about Armageddon, and chapter 19, the second coming of Christ, the marriage supper, the marriage of the Lamb, and the coming of Christ. And then the millennium begins in Revelation 20 with the putting away of Satan. And we've written that up in the uh, Good News, my article, which some of you have commented on and found it helpful. Uh, the saint shall stand before God's throne, so in heaven. That's in the Good, good News magazine, uh, Living Church News magazine. So I hope you all have read that, and you can put all the pieces of the puzzle together to realize, yes, we need to stand before God's throne in heaven. Let's turn to Revelation, the 19th chapter. As we've mentioned before, there are inset ch chapters, and some have had problems with understanding because they've tried to put Revelation 17 and 18 in a sequential order, where they're, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong pointed, they are inset ch chapters. They are descriptive of what's going to happen to Babylon the Great and, and so forth. Uh, but chapter 19, you go from chapter 16 to chapter 19, and you get more of the sequence of events that way. Revelation 19, and start with verse 6. And I, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I believe this is the one place in the Bible where the word omnipotent occurs. God is all-powerful. Yes, the announcement of Revelation 11:15 of the seventh trumpet is that the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He is now going to take charge of this earth. It doesn't happen instantaneously, but the announcement is the warning has gone out. You are, you've now had it, you rebels down there. But for us, our response is not where the nations were angry, as we read in Revelation 11:15. But what is our response? Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. A wedding is just a, a beautiful affair, and the wife is always, or the bride, always looking so beautiful. And, uh, oh, I better not get too uh, reminiscent of my own marriage and remember. Well, I, I will remember that. <laughs> I, 
Oh, that was that was special. Mr. Apartian gave my wife away to me. Uh, Liz Meredith, our niece, was the flower girl at the time. Uh, Mr. Roderick Meredith performed the wedding. And uh, I'll share something person, personal with you. I, I forgot the wedding ring, but... Uh, then I uh, mentioned that we had a, my best man. I turned back to him, you know, faked it, and he put his hand in my hand, and I, you know, faked the putting a ring on my wife's finger. She had her engagement ring there already, so we that was our private secret. So we had big smiles just walking down the aisle, <laughs> and uh, then we got to the end, and I told Dr. Meredith the, that story, and he said. I shouldn't tell on this, but he forgot the ring also when he got married. So I felt, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> so, but we won't need to, uh, Christ will not forget any rings uh, when he marries us. It's going to be a fabulous event. Verse 8 of Revelation 19, And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And so the armies of heaven come, and uh, those who are with him, who are the armies, verse 14, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and followed him in white horses. Well, we just read that the bride is in fine linen, clean and bright, verse 8. But it also tells us in, I believe, Matthew 25, there are angels with him. So there are angels, and there are the saints that are with him that come back to the earth and uh, put away uh, the beast and the false prophet. And that period of time, as we read, of course, in the uh, book of Revelation, uh, the booklet, uh, Revelation Unveiled, that the nine days between trumpets and atonement, are the days in which the seven last plagues are poured out, and then, of course, ending with Christ coming down to the earth and with Satan being put away on the Day of Atonement, which is made clear here in verse chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, put into the bottomless pit that he should no longer deceive the nations till the thousand years were finished. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that's our calling. We look forward to the seventh trumpet. But we understand that there are seven trumpet plagues over a period of a year that comprise the day of the Lord. And we also understand that Jesus was not born on December 25th, but was he born somewhere near the Feast of Trumpets? Well, yes, we've written about that in uh, the uh, question and answer because it has to do with his coming back. He's not coming back on Pentecost. He was born around either two weeks, either side of the Feast of Trumpets. He wasn't born on Pentecost. He was born on near the Feast of Trumpets and probably on the Feast of Trumpets. We have a Q&A in the Tomorrow's World magazine, August, uh, November, December 2005. 
Does the Bible give any guidelines as how Christians should observe Christmas? And, of course, you can read in Luke, the first chapter, while Zechariah was serving at the temple in the division of Abijah, an angel appeared to him and announced that he would have a son, John the Baptist. The division of Abijah was the eighth to serve each year, and by calculating the dates forward, we find that John the Baptist was born near Passover in the spring, and Jesus was born six months later, that's Luke 1, verses 24 through 26, which would place his birth in September or October, not on December 25th. So if Jesus was born then on the Feast of Trumpets, why would he come back on any other time except on the Feast of Trumpets? Why would you say the Feast of Trumpets has no meaning on the first day of the seventh month? We have to shift all that meaning to Pentecost. doesn't make any sense. But God sets the calendar for us, and he gives that understanding. So the day of the Lord will probably go from Feast of Trumpets to the following Feast of Trumpets year to year. But we understand, of course, that Christ may have come. His first coming may have been on the Feast of Trumpets. But at least by calculation, within two weeks of the Feast of Trumpets, either side. And, of course, how was he received? Of course... Uh, well, let's just look at that in Luke, the first chapter, his first coming. Luke, the first chapter, the nations are angry at his second coming. But, of course, when Mary, who was pregnant, visited her Elizabeth, how did she receive him? And how did even John the Baptist, still in the womb of Elizabeth, respond to the presence of the Lord in the womb of Mary? Luke 1 and verse... 43. Well, let's start with uh, verse 42. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 43, Luke 1. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of these things which were told her of the Lord. So there was an inspiring time of Christ's first coming. Of course, uh, within a year or so later, uh, the men from the east, they were not just three, they were probably 12 of the wise men. We've written in that, uh, on that article, too, that brought gifts to Jesus. And that is, of course, why? That wasn't a birthday gift. It was because he was to be king of a kingdom that would never end. That's already also listed here in Luke, the uh, first chapter. So Christ may have come on the first uh, on the Feast of Trumpets, and will come again at the last trumpet. And we presume that that will be on the Feast of Trumpets. But we look forward to that time. How do we prepare? We prepare by having oil in our lamps. We prepare by understanding the sequence of, of prophecy. And understanding there will be trying days ahead in which we are called to persevere and to endure unto the end. We need to also think about what it will be like to be living with Jesus Christ. When you read about his life, you realize that he was an outdoorsman. He dined with the Pharisees, eating and drinking with the publicans and sinners. He was an executive He selected his disciples. He is one now ruling the universe, as it tells us in Revelation and Hebrews, the first chapter. 
So who do you enjoy being with? Let's turn to Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation 3. As we think about the resurrection taking place, the wedding with Christ, our being born into the family of God as born again, children of God. We are not born again at Pentecost. We were begotten as God's children at Pentecost and given a lifetime to grow and to overcome. Revelation 3 and verse 20, he talks about uh, the Laodiceans. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And in Matthew 25, I believe it is, that Christ will actually serve those who are born into the kingdom of God. But, of course, we need to make sure that we're not Laodicean. The answer to that is verse 19, be zealous and repent. So we look forward to the time when we will be with Christ. There were times in the history of the world in which the Lord, the one who became Jesus Christ, met with human beings. The God of the Old Testament, who became Christ, met with Moses face to face, as we've read in the Scriptures before. Jacob even wrestled with the one who became Christ. Abraham prepared a meal for the eternal. Of course, Adam hid from the Lord. The kings of the east, the magi, brought gifts to the newborn king. The children praised the Messiah, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's Matthew 21, verse 9. But all the people in Jerusalem cried later for his crucifixion. And he still prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We have to pray to, for the kingdom to come. We have to prepare for the kingdom to meet the king. We must always have oil in our lamps. We must ask God for his spirit and stir up his spirit in us. We must be alert and watchful and watch for the key prophetic events that lie ahead. Let's turn to one more scripture in closing. Revelation 22, verse 20. We look forward to the time when the heavenly announcements are made for the Lord God omnipotent reigns in the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Let's have an overview of the prophetic events that lie ahead and realize that God has promised to bring us through those events with his love, with his angelic protection, with his grace, as long as we remain faithful. Our attitude must always be to have that reverence of God as we saw that he's going to reward those that fear his name. We love him, we reverence him, we fear him, and we desire Jesus Christ to come back because he's the bridegroom of the bride. Verse 20 of Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, and that is Jesus the Lord, Surely I am coming quickly. What is our response? Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Is that your wish, your desire, your goal in life? To think of the terms of Christ coming back to this earth as we first of all go to the wedding and then return. 
And then, of course, John, the writer of Revelation, concludes, verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So, brethren, thank God for his coming kingdom. Let's look forward to fellowshipping with one another for eternity as loving brothers and sisters. Let's prepare to meet the king. Let's prepare for the coming glorious kingdom of God.